Hey, everybody, you are listening to Just Screen It, Case Studies in Creative Distribution. I am your host, Colin Stryker, and I am not an expert in creative or self-distribution of independent film, uh, although maybe I'm becoming a little bit more of one after every interview I do. I don't know. You tell me. Uh, I am an independent filmmaker working towards making my first narrative feature a horror film entitled The Grove. Uh, and as I've been contemplating my own eventual distribution strategy, I've been looking at self-distribution as a potential option, but I've found that there's not a whole lot of information out there to understand how it's worked for people. So I decided to start this podcast to help capture some of the experiences of those who have already been through it, whether successful or otherwise, and from those experiences, help both listeners and myself better understand this really complex, crazy landscape of independent film distribution today. So each week, I will be bringing on a filmmaker who has self-distributed or been personally involved in the distribution of their film. My hope is that future filmmakers can take the knowledge gleaned from the show and use it to make their own decisions on how to best distribute their films. Hey, everybody. Today, I'm talking with Marcus Marcoux about his experiences distributing his two feature films, Papadopoulos and Sons, put out in 2012, and his latest feature, The Wife and Her House Husband, which is just starting its theatrical release. Marcus, Greek by descent and hailing from Great Britain, has a fantastic story to tell, starting off in theater and then shifting to film as a better way to slice up the sausage. Give this interview a listen to see what I mean by that. We touch on a ton of good stuff in this interview, but the main theme of the conversation seemed to be centered upon the importance of theatrical distribution for independent filmmakers as a way to get reviews and generate interest in your film, a notion that I think sometimes gets lost in this day and age of streaming platforms. This is a lively and informative chat. Marcus brings a wealth of experience and advice to the table here, so much to take away for independent filmmakers. So let's get right to it, my conversation with Marcus Marcoux. All right. Well, hello, Marcus. Welcome to the podcast. It's good to see you. I just watched most of Papadopoulos and Sons last night. Fortunately, I was falling asleep. I wasn't quite able to get through the end of it. And that is no reflection on the movie. I just, it was just, you know, already late at night and, <laughs> you know, so going to watch the rest tonight, but really enjoyed it. And I know that that's one of your films that you put out that you were kind of involved with the distribution with, but Yes. Yeah. Just just starting out. Why don't Why don't you go ahead and give us a kind of an origin story and history, how you got into filmmaking? Your, yeah. Is your emphasis more on the distribution side or on the creative side? Yeah. The well, it more on the distribution side, but recognizing well, I, that the creative side is linked, especially no, as I, independent I think, filmmakers. You know, that's it's the whole world is. Yeah. It's one big world. I mean, I've always said that that today's in. I mean, I said it. For at the very beginning with Papadopoulos and Sons, which was my debut feature, yeah. that I think at the core of independent filmmaking has to be an acknowledgement that at some point one also has to embrace distribution yeah. and has to, you have to factor that in pretty well, quite early into your sort of plans and your methods and your process. Because obviously the days where, and it might change and it's always changing. The landscape is always changing for independent film. But, you know, the, the 90s were kind of the peak where indie filmmakers could just make the movie and even before the 90s as well and have studios, you know, pitch for the, the project and pay handsomely for it. And 
those days kind of came to an end and and because there is there is a proliferation of independent filmmaking i mean it's it's easier to make films and most a lot more people are making them so and at the same time there seems to be a kind of almost constricted sort of vehicles by which those projects can be bought there's mm-hmm. the buyers uh can't have more sort of pressure on them to buy certain kind of movies with certain kind of names that are more easily marketable let's just say so i do i did i did put i did sort of stumble had to kind of work out a way of how i was going to do that with papadopoulos and sons so distribution was was really linked very closely to the spirit of the project which was how do i do this independently and the success of the distribution was really rooted in getting the message out to the greek and cypriot community in the uk whilst it's a universal film that was bought by netflix originally then it was bought by arte which is a french german french distributor via the german distributor and it was also sold across the middle east and it was eventually bought by the bbc and it's has a residency on BBC iPlayer at the moment. Whilst it's a universal film, I really did think, well, who are the who are the stalwarts? Who are the core audience that are just going to come out based on the title alone and the trailer? Mm-hmm. I I didn't, you know, when when you think of how a lot of movies are marketed, they have a kind of hook that effectively targets a very specific audience. Now, beyond that, you get the the sense of a breakout. That's something no one can can really control it either happens or doesn't and so for me it was just about getting the greeks and the cypriots in to see that film and i used all the guerrilla marketing tools available to do exactly that yeah yeah great and so uh, there's a lot of stuff that we're going to touch on there and and yes. I, I don't mean to divert you from any of that stuff but no. let's kind of if we can let's just start out with you know we'll kind of kind of go back in time and then go forward through time like what got you into filmmaking in the first place and you know, sort of got you towards the making of your first feature, and then we'll you know get dive into that in more detail. Well, I was always I was a writer. I'm a writer before I'm anything else, and I used to write plays. I, I mean, I had a passion for acting, and I trained at Lambda as an actor. I, I'm half our year group were Americans and Canadians actually, and I, I left drama school, but with a sort of family business that. I felt I had to get involved with, which was my younger brother. It was a family business. But later on, being so deeply involved in business was what allowed me to kind of work out a kind of strategy for distribution. So it all kind of worked out for me in the end. So, but early on in my in my kind of life, I was a writer. I was a, a, an actor. I was keen to b- b- focus on being an actor, but then frustrated with my creative outlet starting a business which was a, an internet startup right in in like the first dot-com boom of the of the late 90s it, it was an intense crazy time where so much money was thrown at new ideas and startups and i was part of that in the uk and it took up all my time and i realized that there was no way and i had a there was a crossroads moment when i my agent put me forward for a job which would have involved me going into theatre for the Royal Manchester Exchange. It's a lovely sort of theatre up in the north of England. And I had to turn it down because the demands of a startup were so great. So that really forced me to look at 
what other creative outlets. And one of them was writing and the other was improv theater because with both those things, I didn't need to rehearse. I didn't need, I could do it for free. I could be an amateur. Mm -hmm. I didn't need to go out and try and get work to earn money. I could, I joined a radical improv theater company in London that was right on the leading edge of, it wasn't even kind of theater sports, which was comedy. This was like 45 minute sort of improvisations geared around serious stories with three act structures, right? So that will accelerate your writing skills more than anything else. So once I started doing that, I suddenly realized, well, I'm kind of understanding how plays are written. So I started writing plays and I had a couple of plays in London and I was happy with that. I was happy just writing plays, doing my improv theater, really not pursuing a commercial sort of not, no need for a commercial aspiration. I wasn't, didn't need to go for adverts for TV and land myself a sitcom. And I was free as an artist to explore improv theater and write interesting plays that with absolutely no commercial value, right? <laughs> and that, that's probably a really good breeding ground for any artist, I think. And then I, I, with my second play, I got really frustrated that someone else was directing it and someone suggested, why don't you make films? I said, I can't make films. It's too technical. <laughs> it's too overbearing and technical. I love the stage. The stage is just, you just need a empty space, a light or two and an actor and some words and it's go. Right. right. But with filmmaking, I just was like, where would, would one begin? So I explored a filmmaking course part time. And I was like in my late 30s then. And I loved it. I was like, oh, well, actually, the filmmaking process is it's kind of similar to theater, except in theater, what you're doing is you're delivering the you're rehearsing and you're, you're sort of editing as you go along. And then you're delivering the final salami as it were yeah. <laughs> at the end of that process yeah and with filmmaking i realized that what you're doing is every take is a salami slice every take is like a rehearsal it's never a finished product and you're doing it almost in reverse and then you go into an edit room and you put all the salami slices together to create the salami so every take on set is a rehearsal and once you get that idea across to actors and crew, everyone relaxes. There's no such thing as the take, right? Because you don't know what you're going to need until you get into an edit room. And then suddenly you're piecing the salami together. Whereas theater's the opposite. Yeah. You're editing the work as you go along in a four-week rehearsal, let's say. And your opening night is the fin is basically picture lock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so I I thought, okay. I really like filmmaking. In fact, I prefer it to the theater because I've got more control over this theaters. Like you to get that finished salami. If you take the wrong direction in rehearsals, mm -hmm. there's no saving it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whereas with a movie, you, you can go, okay, well, we're missing these slices to make the complete salami. I can go back and get pickups. I can, do, I, can, I can cut that scene. I can put some music over that, whatever. You can find ways of changing the tone and creating your art. There's, you know, as everyone knows, that the edit is everything. Yeah. And you have, okay, you can't save everything in an edit, but you can certainly do a lot more than you could do in theatre where – that opening night 
pretty well is going to be 90% of what you've just, just start with. So once I went through that process, I made a short film. I loved it. And everything just aligned for me in the short in a way that, that I, I was so grateful for. And the person, the DOP of my first short film, which was my student film, was James Friend, who won the Oscar at the last Oscars for All Quiet on the Western Front. Wow. So, and yeah, and James and I were like young together. We were like kind of starting out. He had a lot more experience, but we just hit it off straight away. And I just always, I've always had that serendipity, I think. And you kind of go with that. You kind of go with that, that sense of serendipity. And, you know, he was, we, the, the sun shone just when we needed it. The rain stopped when we needed it. And I, cause I remember saying to myself at the beginning of that short film, I was like, if this is a nightmare, I'm out. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I don't want the grief. Yeah. But things were happening through the day. People like James and everyone else in the crew were going, oh, my God, that's amazing. Like, just as we turn the camera, the sun's rising. And James, like, oh, my God, that's amazing. And the other crew were going. So I thought, okay, maybe that's a sign that maybe maybe I've got – because I couldn't, get, I couldn't get breaks in other ways in theatre, for example. Mm-hmm. I, I, and I thought, okay, maybe this is, this is more – fortuitous for me for the right reasons and of course what i did then is i brought in all my business experience as a, almost like as a producer right yeah yeah that, to then make things happen so i had the producer's energy and i had a producer's organization and i had a pragmatism right so i'm when i'm on a film set there's a part of my brain which is a producer like i'm working on a new project at the moment and we're going around with the schedule and the budget and I'm thinking like a producer at that stage. I'm saying we don't need an action vehicle here. We'll save ourselves 800 pounds, get it out. You know, we can make we can make this simpler and still tell the story and save ourselves a lot of trouble and grief. So, or I can be on a location as I was last week and think, well, I can rewrite that scene to play outside of the shop, which will sa- save us a day of filming and also we won't have to dress inside a shop. If I could, it's only like two minutes. I can play that scene outside it, not in it. It's those making those sorts of indie film choices that make things a little bit smoother. That not only tell the same story, but sometimes can enhance it as well. Yeah. yeah so sure. that was that's how I got into it. In in short. Yeah. Uh, great. I I love that story. That and how you sort of fell into it through theater. You know, I've heard that, you know, that definitely other filmmakers have have come from theater as well. I came from theater. I was a theater major in college. And, you know, for me, it was sort of more like the technical aspect didn't actually scare me. It sort of fascinated me right from the get-go. So, you know, I dabbled in theater and then I was like, no, I really want to be in film, you know. But hearing that that story of you sort of sort of being being a little bit nervous about it at first but then just kind of jumping in and seeing that power and yeah. then, and then the analogy of the salami i love that analogy is great but what you get with filmmaking is a is more control yeah, yeah. over the process yeah that and and you end up with a with a, a finished piece of work that isn't going to die when the lights go out because you know i thought i'd written some good plays but they didn't have enough time to find their audience, let's yeah. say. And, and you know, you see, it, the, like, you see it all the time throughout theatre where a play can be revived when it was a failure in its own day and suddenly resonate with an audience. And you think there are probably hundreds of plays that were written that may never get that chance of being discovered for what? 
right. ever reason. And and there's a famous writer here called John Whiting, who was effectively written off as a playwright in the sort of 60s, 70s, or earlier than that, probably 50s. And, and then they revived him about 20, 15, 20 years ago. And lots of people were going to those plays and thinking, my God, this guy's a genius. But but in his day, never received that accolade. And I think the beauty of the film over the play, and I've, I found this with my own things that I've done, it, they, they are lo- they're around longer to find your audience. If you, if you make a film that's truthful, that's honest, look, you can market nonsense and get huge overnight success because you're blasted in all the marketing channels. But there are so many films that you would never rewatch in a yeah. million years, even though they were marketed to death and they've got famous actors in them. But we, we can be fooled for in the short term, but a film that a real true work of art is one that stands the test of time. And if you look at all the films that, I mean, if you look at things like Big Lebowski were not, or, you know, they were, no, were never considered successful in their, in when they were released, but they found audiences. And there are many examples of films that have done that. And the truth is time is the great sort of sorter out of what is good and bad. Yeah. And, and that's always been my attraction to film as well and i made a short film called two strangers who meet five times which is now nearly three and a half million views on youtube and it's been organic mm-hmm. and when i first put that on youtube and i and, and it didn't get into a single it got into like 60 like festivals around the world but none of them were big enough to merit an oscar kind of application as right, it were. Right. but i felt it was good enough for that because it's a really good universal story but then I suddenly found over time, it just grew and grew and grew organically. So it wasn't on one of those channels that have millions of followers. I just put it out on my own channel and I have hardly any, I've got like 20,000 subscribers, right? But it grew, and grew slowly over time through the pandemic and then got embraced by schools and word of mouth. And that's an incredible, and it's now approaching three and a half million views. And it's, you should check it out. It's only 12 minutes. And it goes to show you, right, that if something's good and authentic and is from the soul, as it were, or something authentic, doesn't matter whether it's dark or whether it's feel good. If it's authentic, it will eventually find its audience. Yep. Things do. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think we live in a time where just the, the technology is such that that is, has never been more true than it is now, right? Is the, is the technology, and for all of the problems that come with that technology and we can get into all that that you know there's all kinds of issues with it for filmmakers but it is certainly true that it has never been easier to get a film out there to where it could potentially be seen by audiences not necessarily guaranteed to be seen by audiences but potentially seen by audiences without anybody saying no you can't you can't have this out there you can get it out there and it has this viral growth potential that has never existed before, which is just and, fascinating. And what you're up cool. against is obviously the marketing machine yeah. of a studio or a streamer, for yeah. example, which yeah. is this very like, and you see how they dominate kind of influencers, social media, news stories that come out. And I, I mean, I've seen some films by some very well-established filmmakers that, I didn't think we're very good at all, but you would never think that from the the, the buzz, right? Yeah. 
Yep. And it's very controlled and they throw a lot of money at it. And some of the reviews are much more positive than they should be, let's say. But, but the truth is this, is like the question you ask yourself is, am I going to watch that film again? Or am I going to watch it in 10 years? Or is it something that's going to be revisited? And often the answer is no. And the proof of the pudding is 10 years go by and that film is forgotten. And the other films have in that 10 years that might have not have had the same buzz, have slowly grown, found an audience. They're being recommended by film people. They're being mentioned on YouTube, like those kind of YouTube channels where people are are proper film buffs uh, and they're discussing. And the, the, the recommendations just keep going around because the world is full of really bad movies that were marketed really well. And once you get through that, sea of rubbish as it were eventually you stumble upon these gems and and you're right it's like technology now allows you to find those films and recommend them and they can find a, a gr- gr- growing a glowing audience over time now that's not to say that every one of those hollywood mark marketed blockbusters are overhyped because sometimes they're overhyped and they're good yeah right yeah. and yeah. you're like okay it's it's overhyped and this is good. And it's a film I will watch again. But I remember there's a film like 20 years ago, which was very quiet, had a very, and it was a commercial flop. It was Master and Commander, Peter, Peter Weir, Russell Crowe. When you go back to that film, right? And I've been going back to that film for the last 10 years, and I'll regularly put it on. The detail, the authenticity, the story. And isn't it interesting now, you're starting seeing those YouTubers start saying, oh, wow, let's look at this film. This is a film that needs to be rewatched because it is an absolute classic. And again, it, it, one of those, that film will never date. It will never age because right. it's so authentic. It so, captures that period so perfectly. The performances are incredible. The story is very dynamic. Just the fact that they've got this, the, the photography and the sound is just extraordinary. That film can be watched in 20 years' time Yep. And you will never know when it was made because yep. it's so accurate to its time. It's, it's extraordinary. So it's, it's, it's a very hopeful medium, even for independent filmmakers who are often living in the shadow of these giant streamers and studios who seem to be blasting their way and ignoring us and pushing us to the side. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they will always do that. And they always have done that, whatever medium you're in. It's just amazing now that you have this ability to, you know, before when it was, when movies were only shown in movie theaters, if you couldn't get in a movie theater, there was no way anybody was ever going to watch your film. It was gone, you know, and, but now we have this democratic medium that at least makes it possible that it can get out there. But at the same time, I always, I'm always an advocate for cinema. Yeah. Like he's an independent filmmaker, which is what I did with Papadopoulos and Sons. I, I, and what I did with my last film, The Wife and Her House Husband, I put it, I put it in cinemas. And it's the thing that I still advise other filmmakers to do, because if you even get your film for one week, right, in a cinema, then there is a greater opportunity for uh, critics to review it, right? And I did this recently, this year, with a film called The Wife and a House Husband, which is micro-budget. I shot that film for less than 250,000 and I shot it in nine days. It was an ele- originally an 11 day schedule and I, I lost two days to COVID and I shot it in nine. And I really like that's, and it's got no stars. 
it's got, I mean, brilliant actors, but they're not names. The female lead, it's a couple, it's a breakup story, and it's really quite theatrical. And a lot of people, even Mark Commode, who ended up reviewing it, right, called it, said it was like a stage play, but filmed. Because it's a, it's a story between a husband and wife in nine locations over three days, and it's a conversation, and it's a breakup story, right? I've shot it on one lens, and I shot it handheld and off the shoulder, which means I could be quite intimate, and, and I could shoot really quickly, and I rehearsed it like a piece of theater. And so it's, it, it's, it could be shot in nine days for that reason. And I, the production design and locations were, were planned in a way that I could shoot 360. Mm -hmm. wow. So, so it means we can make a really good film really quickly without compromising on performance. Now, I stuck it in, I put it in one cinema in central London to start with, the Prince Charles Cinema, and I four walled it. And which is a kind of, it's a more of a dirty word in the UK <laughs> as it is in America. Mm. But right, but I, I four walled it for three weeks there, and they gave me a discount on the, on the on the sort of higher as it were and as a result of that i got reviewed in the guardian and i got mark commode to review it and he came out really strongly for it and positively nice. and said look this is this is micro budget but it has he said his words were it has a philosophy that makes it dangerous he said there were some flaws about it that he didn't like the fact that it felt like theater on film but at the same time it was worth checking out and that helped us expand grow go to other cinemas in the UK. Um, it's now going to Australia and it's going to have a hundred theatrical screenings wow. in all major cities in Australia because they love it there. And it was, it was Palace Cinemas that have taken it in Australia. Now, this is a micro budget film, right? Made for less than 250, right? In nine, shot in nine days with no star names mm -hmm. doing theatrical release on the other side of the, of the planet. And, that's because I fought, took the risk to full wall it in London in one cinema, but it was enough to get some sort of high profile critics to consider it. Yeah. And this is why the advice I always give to independent filmmakers, yes, your film can this be discovered online. Yes, technology is a brilliant sort of vehicle by which we can reach audiences. But you can, but, and, but you will, your, your chances of getting into Cannes or Berlin or Toronto or Sundance are limited, mm -hmm. right? Because you might be the wrong kind of filmmaker, the wrong age, the wrong demographic. You might be the wrong, the, not the right subject matter that year that they're looking for, right? All of those things. And you may not have a star or two, right? When you do your own theatrical, what you're doing is creating your own film festival, mm -hmm. really. Yep, what you're yep. doing is you're basically hiring out a venue that's your theater. It's like a film festival. And you're guaranteeing a better chance of getting critics to come and see your movie. And I had a friend who reached out to me and said, what do I do with my feature? They, met, they were micro budget. And I said, do exactly what I've done. And they ended up with a four-star review in The Guardian. Mm. And they were like, straight on to me and said, Marcus, thank you so much. As I said, exactly that. It's like it gives the, the never give up on a theatrical release. More opportunities now for indie filmmakers to do deals with their cinemas, local, and get critics to consider the film. That's because then you've got something to build on for your for your 
sort of digital release. Yeah, totally. And I, I certainly didn't mean to disparage that approach in any way. No, I know you weren't disparaging. And honestly, I, I would say that that uh, you know, even aside from all of the distribution, the you know, getting reviews and and that kind of thing, like the advantages of showing in movie theaters for uh, you know getting the movie seen by more people, just right at the root of things, I still think that movie theaters are still the best movie going experience. Of course, and and I just you know that's probably if there's a downside to streaming these days it's that it's hurting movie theaters and it's hurting that social thing that we do where we go out and we see a movie and our attention is 100% focused on this big screen in front of us and you know i still i don't want to lose that and i still hold out a lot of hope that independent filmmakers can continue to pursue that as an avenue to get their film seen well, what I did was with the Prince Charles Cinema, which is like an indie cinema. Yeah. It's independently owned. It's yeah. you know, it's the kind of cinema that will screen the room, and everyone everyone will go. will screen like two thousand and one, like the original print. You know, it does that kind of stuff, right? It's an amazing cinema. It's the kind of living heart and soul of independent film and good film. Actually, they do all the best reruns, and whenever there's nothing on on the cinema, I'll look at the Prince Charles listings and there'll be a classic, you know, whether it's The Exorcist or whether it's 2001 or whether, whatever, It'll, there'll be a classic. Midnight Run, I'll be like, I'm down there to see it, whatever, right? And what I did with the Prince Charles is when I forewalled it, I said, well, if I'm forewalling it, I may as well just only charge a pound a ticket. Mm. So I, I, I launched the campaign cinema for a pound because I thought the distribution then becomes the marketing. And so it got that story got picked up by lots of media like, oh, it's this guy, this guy, the Papadopoulos guy who self-distributed Papadopoulos and Sons by targeting the Greek community is now doing cinema for a pound. Because I realized that I couldn't draw on my, the, my Hellenic diaspora kind of there's nothing in the story that would attract Greeks, right, apart from me. But I'm not, you know, who cares? Right. It's not the story. So. I thought, well, why don't I, if I'm going to forewall it, I might as well just forewall it for a pound. And that's my marketing. And that had an amazing effect. Like we, we, I think in three weeks, it was a small cinema, only like, I think it's, well, I think it's 80 capacity. It's a small venue in, they have two cinemas, a big one and a small screen. And we were like selling out a lot of our screenings and getting the buzz going and the, the owners, the, the people that run the cinema were really, really happy because their big fear was, well, you know, if you don't get any audience, right, how are we going to make money on the popcorn? That's the same for any cinema, but they were really happy with me because I was getting them in for a pound and it was enough. Like I saw that, I think the, what independent filmmakers should see, they should look at, theatrical release differently from the studios and the streamers right well certainly from the studios the studios need to make money at the box office they need to spend a lot of money in order to make even more money right because it's twenty dollars at fifteen dollars a ticket or whatever it is right and they need to sell millions of those right every day every week right as an independent filmmaker, my my approach would be see your theatrical release as your marketing platform. See it as a film festival that's just about you. Do Q&As every night. 
Do an introduction to the audience every night. Explain to the audience your budget, how you made it. Even if it's like, just get up there as the filmmaker. If you do your own theatrical release and do the tickets as cheap as you can, because what you're really doing is saying up the marketing, you, because the, you're doing something a studio can't do. You're doing something a studio cannot do. You're undercutting the ticket sale, which is completely <laughs> counterintuitive to the to the studio right. but what you're doing is putting audience in seats getting your message across and giving yourself a platform for a digital release where you can make your money potentially and that's so so my my kind of the, the drum that i'm banging for independent filmmakers is make your theatrical release your marketing yeah make it your marketing like do, so what i did is i started at the prince charles cinema for three weeks in in london this is the wife and a house husband then i took it to birmingham for a week then i took it to bristol for a week so you can tour it like a band would tour right so instead of doing three cities at the same time do one city after another and you can in theory roadshow your movie like imagine doing that across America, like where you go, I'm going to start in LA, I'm going to finish in New York, and I'm going to roadshow my movie across the States, right? I'm picking up audience as I go along, and I'm not using the theatrical to make money. I'm using the theatrical release to promote my movie. And you just, and then in, in each town, in each city you visit, you can get local PR to come and cover the story, meet you direct, do the Q&A. This is... This is the way forward for independent filmmakers because cinemas will be open to that. Because yeah. which cinema would not be open to a filmmaker coming to their venue, putting on a, a, a screening and speaking about the film? Yeah, I, I, I think especially today where movie theaters are a little desperate to get audiences to come back after COVID and you know losing to streaming and all that kind of thing. Like anything that can eventize a movie and make it something that is a one of a kind experience and not just something that you can get at home on your TV screen is something that I think movie theaters, especially independent movie theaters, are going to jump at. And so, yeah, I totally agree with you. And I, I think that like, you know, what I'm hearing from you is, is that you know, a, a theatrical run for an indie filmmaker should not be considered a money-making venture. It should be considered an investment. It's a money-spending exactly. exactly venture, that. you know, but you're spending the money for later benefits. Exactly. Um, the, yeah. My point is, I was reviewed in The Guardian alongside Ant-Man, and that movie cost $200 million, yeah. and mine cost two hundred thousand, less than 250000 Yeah. We were reviewed in the same newspaper at the same time, and I got a better review. And the point is, that was only achievable because I did a theatrical release. So it's an inc I mean, what's that worth, right? What is that review in The Guardian worth to any filmmaker, right? It's, an, it's, it's like a... It's like a respected broadsheet. It's like the, you know, it's like you know, New York Times, right, or LA Times. It's like a respected newspaper. It carries real value, right? And it's not just a blog. And therefore, it is. It's 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 hundred percent. The theatrical is not. Don't see yourself as a studio looking to make its money back. See the theatrical as a unique opportunity for you to reach audiences. And as you've correctly said, right, there are hundreds of indie cinemas that would welcome an independent filmmaker to their place to screen their film and talk about the process of how they made it, 
and what went into it and what they're doing because audiences crave that authenticity. And that's how you get, that's how you as an independent filmmaker on a low or micro budget can compete head to head with a studio movie. So to follow on that though, I, I want to kind of get into a little bit like assuming that you do that and assuming that you get your theatrical run, you get some good reviews and all that. How do you actually take that? I mean, it's all very satisfying stuff. And, and, and as a filmmaker, that may be all that you live for is just getting it to the audiences and, and you know, the, the reviews and the, just the experience of being able to connect with audiences. But if you're really going about it with a sort of a business plan, how do you turn that theatrical success? And as we've already said, it's like not a financial success. It, you know, it is probably not going to be a financial success in and of itself. So how do you turn that into a financial success? How do you turn that into a well, what you're giving yourself yeah. is the ammunition to go to a sales agent, right? Uh, because yeah. what normally happens is you've made your film, which, which is low budget, has no names in it. And sales agents are like, re I mean, you call them realtors, don't you? The people that sell ho houses, right? Yeah, yeah. In the, in the UK, we call them estate agents, mm -hmm, right? Right. So you're, they're like realtors. Every realtor and every estate agent here in the UK, they can all sell $10 million apartment in New York. I could sell that. Because a 10 million apartment in New York sells itself, yeah. right? <laughs> right. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> to a, right. To a, a very select, <laughs> a select but buyer. The point but is, yes. every, yeah. every realtor and every estate agent loves it when the door is knocked on and someone comes in and says, I've got a, a, a $10 million apartment in New York overlooking Central Park or whatever, or I've got a house in Malibu, right? Because the thing sells itself and the estate agent or the realtor falls over themselves to sell it. The equivalent in the film business is when you knock on the sales agent's door and say, I've got this movie with this star in it, right? And it's the $10 million apartment in New York. They're like, I can sell that. But anyone can sell that if it's got really great, well-known, famous actors with their own brand, right? When you knock when you knock on a realtor's door or an estate agent's door and you've got a more challenging property to sell that's not in a great location, maybe has some transportation link issues, whatever, right? It's a project it's gonna be a harder sell, right? Right, right. Then sales agent thinks, or the realtor thinks, the estate agent thinks, I'm gonna do the same amount of work, probably, more work to sell this property than the 10 million apartment in New York. Yep. And I'm going to get like a lot less money. <laughs> so the sales agent in our business, they're very valuable people. And, you know, we need them. The world needs sales agents, right? They need to connect the producers with the buyers, right? Right. What you do when you go to a sales agent, when you've made a movie, you're basically saying, if it's a low budget indie movie or if it's micro budget, you're basically taking them the, the challenge of selling a movie. They can't really sell or they're going to have to work really hard to sell, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But if you do what I did, right, with Papadopoulos and Science, now we're done with Wife and a House Husband, what you're doing is you're adding value to your property and you're making the sales agent's job easier to make a decision on whether to take you on and, and sell it or not. So you've gone away 
you've just got a great review in the LA Times or the Chicago Tribune. Is that such a paper? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe it is. It seems about right, but I'm not sure. Or the New York Times. You've got a review in the New York Times. You had a theatrical release and made some PR. You've got a great little write-up. A a social media influencer tweeted about it or put it on Instagram. And you've got a little bit of buzz, right? You've done that work. The sales agent cannot do that work. When you go to the sales agent, you're effectively saying, find me a buyer for my movie. Sometimes people go to the sales agent and they go, right, now help me get that value that you can then convert into. So when I was talking to sales agents before the wife and her house husband, a couple of them reached out to me because I'd gone to a couple of American film festivals and nearly got into one very big one, but didn't. And I got some really interesting sales agents knock on my door. And I was really frank with them. I said, there is no, no commercial value in this film right now. Hmm. And they were surprised to hear that. Hmm. I said, but there isn't. My two leads are unknowns. And it's a low budget, bleak, very moving, but bleak drama about a couple breaking up over a, a trauma. It's, this is not, there's no, it's, there's a lot of artistic value, but there's no commercial value. And a couple of the agents went, we'll be the judge of that, Marcus. Just send us the goddamn movie. And then they write back to me and go, you're right. There's no <laughs> right. And, 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 but I was honest with them. I said, my job is now as an independent filmmaker to go out, build some value, get into the, get into some festivals, get some write-ups, get some, build a bit of a buzz. Like now I'm taking the film to Australia. I'm going to Australia and I'm going to do a Q&A in Melbourne and one in Sydney. And I'm hoping, I had a little bit of PR already from a, 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 a publication in Brisbane, right? Which is where it's also playing. It's playing in about eight Australian cities, mm-hmm. a part of, a, part of a, a chain of cinemas called Palace Cinemas. And, Again, I'm building that on top of a really good review by Mark Commode, who is our like Roger Ebert here in the UK, right? And good reviews in newspapers such as The Guardian and a couple of other sort of outlets. Now, when I go to a sales agent with this, I've done the work, right? But I'm giving the sales agent a, a really interesting, a much more interesting property now that they can have a better chance of selling. And whether that goes on the kind of the kind of aggregators, like the the movie aggregator sites that are, yep. that exist now, whether we do it directly that way or whether we go via a sales agent onto the aggregators, it doesn't matter because you can replace the agent now. Let's say with an aggr- with one of these aggregators that puts you on Freevee or you know one of the like free TV channels where you're you're getting your money based on performance and all that. It doesn't matter, right? Or whether you're going to a more traditional sales agent who will do that for you anyway, maybe strike a couple of deals for you here, there, maybe try and get you a like a, a, a broadcaster deal in one of the Eastern European countries or in Europe, whatever, like I did with the BBC. And my point is, wherever you end up, it's going to be a much more interesting place than when you started because you've gone out and you've, you've added commercial value to your property. Yeah, yeah. Like when the when the reason we hire stars for movies, right, is because we and the reason the star gets paid a lot of money or used to, right, when it was a much simpler business, 
was because instantly you're adding value to your property. Like I could take a film script. It's like, it's like the real estate business. It's, it's your, what you do, the, the, the screenplay is like a blueprint for a building that's yet to be built. The moment I add a star to it, I'm adding value to it and therefore a certain level, a minimum level of commitment is required to acquire that film as a project, right? Now, if I get into Cannes or if I get into Venice Film Festival and now I have my same star walk up a red carpet ahead of a screening that gets a standing ovation and then gets an award, right? Yeah. The value is going up and 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 up, right? Now, I could take the same screenplay, exactly the same screenplay, put actors that aren't famous in it, deliver exactly the same film pretty well. Like if you had a parallel universe where one, one version of your story goes this way and the other version of your story goes this way, but you end up with exactly the same film but one's got stars in and is as looks like a bigger budget movie and the other has no stars in it and looks like art house right right the difference between the two is millions and millions of dollars to acquire and no interest at all to acquire sure right yeah. Yeah. so what do you do as an independent filmmaker is like how do we compete well we compete by by doing our own theatrical release because because actually what you sometimes see is the producers spend a lot of money to hire a star for their screenplay. And who doesn't believe in a screenplay that goes on to make a screenplay? You know, no one, no one ever sets out to make a bad movie, right? No right. one. Right. No one. Right. Right. We, this is the, this is a fallacy. We all believe in the films that we're making, but, but you see it all the time where a lot of money is spent on the screenplay. A lot of money is spent on the stars. A lot of money is spent on the production. A lot of investment is made in, De- developing this into a feature that then goes to Berlin or Venice and they have the red carpet and then clunk, it's a turkey, right? And without mentioning any names. Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> you can mention names if you want, but that's okay. I don't uh, mention any yeah, names. No, no, that's okay. Because because no one sets out to make a bad movie. Right, right. No one, no right. actor, Absolutely. no writer, no director, no producer. No one sets out to make a bad movie, right? And what I'm saying is, when you're an independent filmmaker, you can take on that system and give yourself a better chance of succeeding. And at, by doing your own theatrical, treating your own theatrical like it's your own festival, and bring the actors in to do Q and A's, and go out and fly outside the the cinema and talk to the cinema owner about their database and how we can reach their database, and go, do you know what? I'm going to do. If, you don't have to do cinema for a dollar. You can go. Okay, I'm going to do like two tickets for the price of one or five tickets for one, or you throw in some local restaurant deal or whatever to generate the interest. And then when you get up and introduce it for five minutes, you say, I am the filmmaker. I've done this all by myself. Immediately you're buying the goodwill of the audience because the audience sitting there like, wow, this is the real filmmaker. And he didn't spend 80 million, a hundred million dollars. He didn't even spend a million dollars. Oh my God. He only spent $250,000. Oh, in some cases, it's fifty thousand dollars. I think audiences really love those stories too. I mean, I think that like that like you can 
you can create a whole branding around a film that is, you know, the making of the film and, and the, you know, what the, what the filmmaker themselves brought to it. I think that that has a lot of value independently. I think even of the film, I think audiences love those stories. They love the idea of making films and they love hearing stories about how filmmakers made. And I think, and and honestly, I think I love it too. I love being that person that gets up in front of that audience and tells them I made a film for less than 250 and I love the connection I make with the audience. And I, I sometimes think I'm, I might be a happier filmmaker than the guy that went to Cannes, did the red carpet, got the stars and got a one star review. Right. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, it ticked all the, all the boxes were ticked, but there's something missing. And that's, that's a sense of connection to what it is that you're doing. That's, that's more authentic and audiences will pick up on that, especially if you're, making a film from your own heart as it were from your own sense of being if that's reflected in the film itself then audiences will walk away with even if they don't like the film even they go that wasn't my cup of tea i don't know if you have that expression yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yep not my cup of tea it's very much an english thing right if they say it's not it's not my coffee it's not my cup of coffee it's not my cup of tea right they'll still walk away and go but I really respect the artist. I respect the process. I respect the challenges that, that this artist filmmaker went through. I respect the fact that he's put it on in a cinema. I respect the fact that he's engaging in the cinema and critics will feel exactly the same way and go, this deserves some kind of recognition because this kid is up against it. He's up, he's competing with hundred million dollar movies that can, but he's made something that's, Got its faults, right? But it's there's an authenticity and there's a, a a passion about it that's real. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, totally agree with all of that. So it, it it's going to be really exciting to follow you uh, as you go through this process. With I think is this is your second feature film? Yes. Can you remind me what the title is? It's called The Wife and yeah. Her House Husband. I can send you a link the, to The it. Wife and Her House Husband. Yeah, I'd love to yeah. love to watch it. I, I kind of yeah, wish it's that- Yeah, bleak. Uh, it's literally the opposite yeah. end of the Papadopoulos, like. where Papadopoulos <laughs> was feel good and uplifting. I went, yeah. right, I need to explore the other end of this spectrum, which is feel grief, feel yeah. sad. Yeah, okay. So is it is it out and available right now or is it still- No, like, no I'm still doing that. I'm taking it to Australia yeah. in November. Gotcha. For right. like, and I'm going to I'm gonna do Q&As in Melbourne and Sydney. And then after Australia- I've got a sales agent now interested in how we can get it out there. And, but it's interesting that this was a sales agent that wasn't really keen at the beginning, just wasn't keen because I'm giving them a property that's, yeah. they can't sell. And now they're like, okay, I can get something out of this. Yeah. So if you, if you don't mind, could we kind of go back a little bit to the experience of making and distributing Papadopoulos and Sons? Yeah. You know, just, just because, just to kind of talk about something that you've already been through all the way from you know yeah, beginning to end. What what got you kind of started making that first feature and what was your kind of plan going into it for how you were going to distribute that film? Well, I I wanted to tell a story that was kind of rooted in my own experience as a as as a son of a Greek immigrant. So like it was like a Greek diaspora story. Yeah. The 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 the, the diaspora story is is a popular kind of vehicle for a lot of people. And it was for me, I wanted to explore, you know, what was lost along the way when you 
because I want that these were the experiences of my life and I wanted to somehow find a way of exploring that like what what does it mean to be the son of a of a of a Greek immigrant family in the UK what's lost along because you know the Greek culture is really you know it's rich and diverse and it's it it's often runs counter to the culture that of of your the host country and that's why the film that's why my big fat greek wedding was popular with all sort of immigrant nations or why the godfather right is popular with everyone because we all have that a lot of us are the children of immigrants in this kind of world you know and we can make we can relate to it right yeah yeah so that was my impulse in telling the story like i wanted to explore that my own relationship with this like a sense of identity and i used the main character by stephen delane to use that as a journey because he'd lost his greenness and he kind of finds it through the film and it it it, it was kind of like deliberately feel good but with but the, with a sense of melancholy you know it's a guy that's lost his wife he's lost his business he's lost everything yep. and he's ended up in a fish and chip shop where he started with his brother well, he doesn't get on with and they have to start again. So there was a sense that there was, I wanted to tell a story that was hopeful about renewal and about a sense of coming home in a way. So that was the kind of creative impulse. And then, you know, I wrote the screenplay and then, you know, found a very good line producer who, this is the advice I give to any independent filmmaker, like get, get a line producer and make them a producer, hmm. right? If, if it's your money, right, and if you're making your film with your money or money that you and your colleagues are pooling together, your best producer isn't going to be a producer that goes out and raises money and distributes. The best producer you can find is a line producer that will know how to spend your money and get the best deals for your money and run a tight schedule and a tight ship. And that's exactly what I did. So I found a I found a really, really good line producer. And she. I said, look, I'm kind of producing it because it's my money, but I want you to produce it, i.e. schedule, budget, help me create the mechanism by which this thing can be brought to life, the machinery. And, you know, we shot it in 22 days. So it was quick again. And James Friend was the DOP on that as well. And he was, fant- I mean, just having someone like James land in as a DOP, yeah, it's like a, it's like Be- a gift. Beautiful right? cinematography, I'll say. You know, are already yeah. like having. I mean, James, yeah. whatever yeah. James touches is, yeah. is, 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 he brings to it his own. I mean, the DOP I'm working with at the moment on the wife and a husband is exactly the same. They really like the relationship that you like. As an independent filmmaker, you know, from the business side, you need a really good line producer that's going to effectively build the scaffolding by which your production is going to get delivered on time and on budget, right? Yeah. On the creative side, you need to find, if you're a writer-director, you need to find a DOP that, that understands you, is, can add something that you as a director can't add as a DOP, as a DP. And the other advice I give is that there's a key relationship. I think when you're making a film as a writer-director, you, you, you're in your greatest creative partnership is the DOP, mm-hmm. you know, it's like the, I'm, tr- I'm shooting a project next summer, hopefully, and I've got a really famous name attached officially for no money pretty nice. well. Yeah. And it's allowing us to make this indie film. And she's really famous. 
and won lots of awards and and she loves the story and is and it's only a small part but it's it's enough to get the doors opening right and i i am that conversation the conversation even though we're shooting next summer has started with the dp now oh, sure. we have visited locations we're talking about hiring some cameras and some lenses shooting again going back to locate and the conversation here's he's what's happening me give me some references marcus so i'm sending him references i said this is about hope it's about summer it's about the english countryside try this film try this film try to have a look at this film he's watching those films and he's feeding back we're talking aspect ratios already we're already talking about what lens we want to shoot on we briefly discussed film and then real and then talked to the producers and we said ah maybe one way now is to shoot digital convert to film and then back to digital again there's this whole new process now where you're you shoot digital you convert to film in the process just before the grade and then you're you're working with an image that's been put to film and then back to digital again it's like so there but you see having those conversations early a year in advance is what gives you the edge i think as a filmmaker so and that doesn't cost much money that's the point so with papadopoulos i was very lucky with james to have that relationship and and i'm very lucky to have the line producer that became a producer that was a key relationship and then you know in in, in case of and in terms of the talent i was just really lucky that Stephen Delane jumped like you, you as an independent filmmaker. If you can get a name like Stephen, it gives it gives the whole project a huge, huge chance yep. of doing something. As a result of Stephen, I've gone to the Thessalonica Film Festival and it won the audience award there. Nice. Uh, it then got picked up by Palm Springs. I didn't even I didn't even submit to Palm Springs. I didn't even submit. Palm Springs picked up the phone and went, you've just won the Thessalonica Film Festival. Can we have your film here? I'm like, yeah, sure. I didn't even know. I was so naive. I didn't even, I didn't even heard of Palm Springs, right? I was like, I want to go to Toronto because I, you know, or Sundance because, you know, the only stories I knew then were like the Little Miss Sunshine had been picked up at Sundance and, and Slumdog Millionaire had made its name at Toronto. Right. That's all I kind of knew. Right. Right. So I didn't know. I I didn't. I didn't didn't know about Palm Springs. I didn't know about Seattle Film Festival. But so as a result of Stephen was really gave us could open doors to festivals like Thessalonica, which were you know it's the biggest film festival in the eastern sort of part of Europe, like the Balkans, right? And Palm Springs picked up the phone. I didn't know. But Palm Springs was an influential film festival. So we go to Palm Springs and I didn't contact. So Hollywood Reporter just dropped in. I never, so I never contacted Palm Springs, but Palm Springs wanted the film. I never contacted Hollywood Reporter, but they turned up to see what Stephen Delane was up to. And they said, they, the quote was, Stephen Delane's best ever showcase. Wow. Yeah. And suddenly, guess what? The BBC, who were not interested, before this yeah said we want your film as long as it does a theatrical release in the uk so this is how it worked it's like it's like sort of a snowball effect like like one thing leads to another but it started with stephen yeah going oh i like this story i'll maybe i I can maybe consider doing it but he was 
the story with Stephen was he was committed to Game of Thrones and he couldn't do the movie. And then I was on a phone call with him and I said, look, I noticed your son I was when I was doing internet research. He looks quite Greek. Can I get him in for casting? And he said, yeah, sure. So I got his son, Frank Delane, who's the he's in a film he's in a tv series fear of the walking dead he's like the main guy in the fear of the walking dead and subsequently and at the time he was at drama school and i saw frank and I went, oh god he's really good he plays the very young Voldemort in the harry potter movies like the really oh, young okay. yep yep like and he ended up in various tv shows in the states but i thought he was fantastic so i cast him and then stephen went I want to be in this movie oh, because okay. my son's in it. Oh. And uh, at that point, I just thought, does he play Steven's the son gonna... in the movie? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so it's his real son, real son, so, real father so and son Steven, in the movie. I didn't yeah, pick up father on that. And son playing father and son. Oh, that's so great. Stephen got game of Thrones to move their schedule. Oh so he could make this low budget indie. <laughs> and they did. Wow. What did he play in game of Thrones? I I, I can't remember. Stannis Baratheon. He plays oh, in game of Thrones. Oh, he played Stannis. Oh my God. Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah. 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 Now I see that. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So, okay. uh, yeah. So he decided to come to the project because he wanted to make, the film with his son and of course what you get in those scenes between father and son is a real intimacy and you get that for free because you just know that they're working on it you know at home after dinner they're going through the screenplay and and they, they brought both frank and stephen bought a really rare family touch to the whole set like it was like oh this feels like this feels like a family project rather this is the mum and pop store version of filmmaking as opposed to corporate right and it was there. so but my point is is that that i hadn't i mean you can't underestimate what someone even even though i couldn't get into the bigger festivals let's say i got into the right ones because as a result of the positive review of hollywood reporter at palm springs the bbc picked up the phone and the next thing i know i'm doing a deal with the bbc now because they were big fans of stephen delane you see so we can't underestimate talent. No, yeah. The point is, it worked for me because Stephen was working way below his rates right. that he would normally. Why? Because he gets to work with his son on a film where he's not playing a villain. He's just playing a dad. Yeah, just yeah. And he said to me, the reason he was drawn to this screenplay is that no one had ever sent him a screenplay where he's just a dad. He's always gets, he said, bent coppers and villains. That's all he ever used to get. So, you know, like corrupt policemen and villains. Just to drill down on that a little bit. I mean, I think that that for indie filmmakers is a great strategy towards getting name talent is going after going after the talent that is looking to expand what they're kind of getting cast yeah. in, in the Hollywood system or whatever, you know, and give them the range to explore something that they haven't done or that they haven't been able to do. Absolutely. It'll take a much lower rate to do that, you know? So, yeah. and I yeah. mean, most, it's whether you can get past the agent. I mean, most actors, they're just, they're just human beings that are very sensitive, very shy, yet they're in the public eye. It's a huge contradiction. I've never met an actor that wasn't extremely sensitive, extremely shy, extremely fragile. And there's a reason for that, which is that when you're an artist and you're painting on a canvas or you're a musician and your instrument is the piano or the guitar or your photographer and your instrument is the camera and then the image, whatever, right, as an artist or you're a writer, there's this gap between you and your art, right? When you're an actor, there's no gap between 
you and your art. You are the art, right? right? Yeah. And that can be that can be incredibly challenging to be. It's incredibly challenging to be an actor. And then if you're a famous actor, as Stephen is, right? Quite, he's very well known in the UK. Fantastic theatre. He's the, one of the best of his generation, right? He's like, it throws up all these sorts of challenges. But if you can go to an actor and say, look, I want to make something authentic. I want to make something real. I want to make away from the the nonsense, as it were. So someone like for someone like Stephen, Papadopoulos was a really charming job. It wasn't just a chance to play against the type that he's normally cast with. It was an opportunity to be part of a a warm, friendly family film set. Right. Yeah. And I think the other thing independent filmmakers can offer is that experience. They can offer not just actors, but the crew who often are overworked, underpaid, mm-hmm. undervalued, mm-hmm. you know, never listened to. And they're they're all often a lot of crew are are driven by by not making a mistake. They are risk averse. Mm-hmm. They're just risk averse because they just know if they make one mistake, they're going to get fired and the whole world's going to fall on them. And that's where that's why we have a history of toxic film sets, right? There's a history of it. Even beyond Weinstein, right? It's there's a it's it's now what the independent filmmaker can do is offer something more honest, more transparent, more organic, more warm, more humane. And as a result of that, not just the actors the crew as well, you get, you get more like, a, like you've come from theater, you get a theater spirit and suddenly nothing's a problem and everything has a solution. And suddenly we are, we're connected to why we became storytellers in a way that you might not get on a bigger project with more politics and more money and more nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally love that, that take on it. And, uh- kind of putting that all through the lens of Stephen Delane and and getting him on board for your film, I think like really brings it to home. So yeah, I just kind of want want to wind things down here where we've gone on for for quite a while. No, that's no no problem, but got to wind things down. How how did Papa Duplis and Sons turn out for you in the end as a sort of a, a success story, either creative or financial, like just kind of looking back, how did that work out? I got, I got like, I, you know, I, I was kind of a little bit short of breaking even, yeah. and that was fine for me because the additional costs I didn't foresee were like creating an internegative for like because in Greece and Germany, the, the way it was picked up for distribution, they wanted thirty-five millimeter reels, and I as had to suddenly spend fifty thousand on creating an internegative, taking from digital to film, and then I mean that there were those sorts of costs which. Now, I don't think anyone would ask for like a 35 millimeter film, you know. So there, there were additional costs that pushed my budget way beyond what I'd originally hoped, which probably pushed me out of profit, right? But but in creatively established me. I, I learned so much about what I wanted to do with master shots, for example. I thought, well, if I rehearse the actors more, I can get more within the master shot. And then I'm not really using the edit to get myself out of trouble. If I can create the spontaneity and the spark and the interplay and the overlap within one frame sometimes, right, then I've got something more real and organic. 
and more visceral. And I kind of was drawn to that. And I was drawn to that idea. So with the wife and a house husband, it was like I was keen to rehearse them so we could get things in one take. We could do longer one shots, for example, and get things more organic. So and creatively establish me. I'm doing this podcast with you all these years later. So, you know, I, I, I've got no complaints. I, I've had a blast. I'm having a blast. Yeah, yeah, totally. So I'm curious about like the step from, I think the budget, what was the budget for Papadopoulos and Sons, if you don't mind? It's, it, it finished at A50 pounds, which is a million dollars probably, give or take. So a million, it's a million dollar movie. Right. So, so, so with your second film, it, it's a lower budget film. What what was kind of behind the decision to kind of go with a lo- lower budget well, the, this the, time the, It was just practical because yeah. I'd had the money to anchor a bigger movie, which was going to be a 1.5 million. And I was putting in 250 of that. And then the rest was going to come from various sources, sales agents, investors. And and, the, and I was going to be part of that mix as a producer. And I, as an independent filmmaker, I like having skin in the game, as it were. And that fell through just before the pandemic, actually because of the pandemic. And I thought, well, what am I going to do with this 250000 Am I going to buy a – what am I going to do? Yeah. So I thought, well, why don't I write a story that just fits the budget? So I thought, well, I'll write a breakup story. It's two actors. I'll shoot a handheld off the shoulder. I, I wrote a 60-page script deliberately to fit a 10-day shoot because I thought if I do five, six pages a day, six, seven pages a day, right, which is quite fast, but it's only two actors. So I deliberately wrote a story around the pot of money that I had. Okay. <laughs> That's, and then I realized that I could only write 60 pages. And my biggest fear was, will 60 pages translate to 80, minimum of 80 minutes, right? Or will 60 pages with the odd scene cut and, and pace end up as a 40-minute movie? Yeah. That was my biggest worry because I could only afford 60 pages. But the way I shot it, and my gamble paid off and it finished at 80 minutes. Nice. Terrific. Okay. Yeah. And I, I love that idea that you just kind of looked around at what you had and what you could do, you know, in this moment, with, in this time with COVID going on and all that stuff. And, and you just ran with that. And I had, a, I had a 25 grand budget idea, yeah. which was yeah. three days, yeah. two cameras, improvised, yeah. two yeah. actors breaking up. Yeah. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, yeah. So I, if you give me 25, I would have made a different film, but the same kind of story. So if you give me five grand, I'll make you a movie. If you give me a million dollars, I'll make you a movie. If you give me 10, I'll make you a movie. It's like it's finding the movie that fits the budget. Yeah, totally. Uh, that's awesome. So uh, just winding down here, anything else that we didn't cover that you'd like to cover? No, thank you, you very much yeah, for that's... allowing me to talk with you. I always enjoy these conversations because I, I also remember things that I've completely forgotten as well. Yeah, yeah. no, really... it, it, it's great. Really, the, the, a lot of insightful stuff uh, has come out of this, I think, especially, you know, advice for indie filmmakers kind of following their own path, things that they can take away. So I, I appreciate all of that experience and counsel that you bring to it. Any contact information you want to leave? Anything you want to plug? Uh, you know? Well, you can follow me on Twitter and I'll always follow. If you've heard this podcast, follow me on Twitter, say hello and I'll follow you back. I'm at Marcus Marku on Twitter. And that's really my, I mean, I've got other social media, but that's the one where I'm probably busiest. All right, that's all for today. Thanks everybody for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please do rate and or review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
that is the best way that you can help me grow the show and reach a wider audience of independent filmmakers and others who just want to try to understand this crazy, crazy world of independent film distribution. As always, feel free to contact me directly with any feedback or suggestions for the show. You can find me on Twitter, or should I say X, or Instagram at DarkRoseColin, or you can email me at Colin at DarkRosePictures.com. That's Colin with one L, C-O-L-I-N, at DarkRosePictures.com. And by the way, DarkRosePictures.com is my website for my feature and other projects. Its purpose is not just to promote my films, but to tell the story with honesty and transparency of my own personal filmmaking journey. So if you want to follow the process of an independent filmmaker from development to distribution, this is a great way to do that. So check it out, DarkRosePictures.com. Anyway, I want to thank Marcus Marcoux for an absolutely fun and fascinating conversation bringing me back in in my own mind to the value of theatrical distribution in so many ways. I also want to thank Jeff Rymoot for his awesome editing work. I have more great guests lined up in the coming weeks talking all things indie distribution. So please do stay tuned, keep making movies, keep getting those movies out there into the world. And as always, I thank you so much for listening. See you next week. 